Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Alex Mueller to the show. Alex is a lifelong entrepreneur, and his latest venture is Savvy AI. Savvy is an end-to-end, production-ready, artificial intelligence machine learning solution. Alex founded Savvy to help democratize artificial intelligence and machine learning. Prior to Savvy, Alex was the co-founder and CEO of GP Shopper, a retail mobile application developer that helped major retailers navigate their digital transformation by helping them create mobile-first e-commerce solutions. GP Shopper was acquired by Synchrony Financial in 2017. And while at Synchrony, Alex was the SVP Entrepreneur in Residence and Chief Product Officer of FinTech slash AI. Alex was named a top 10 CEO disrupting the retail industry through technology by Forbes. He received his Bachelor of Engineering from Tufts University and his Master's of Engineering and MBA from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And apparently being a native son of Argentina has some interest today, Alex? Yes, I was going to add that fact. I was also born in Buenos Aires and wanted to say I'm so happy that Argentina, we won Copa America, vamos Argentina, and Leo Messi, and my favorite player, Di Maria. That's awesome. Congrats. And welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Can you please share you know, with our listeners a little bit more about Savvy AI? Sure. So Savvy AI is a company that came about because Over the three years while we were working on Synchrony Financial and putting uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence into all sorts of different credit products, we realized it was really hard to do. And sometimes it shouldn't be this hard. So, you know, we were working at Synchrony for uh, three plus years, Maya and I. Maya is also my wife and co-founder of GP Shopper. And then we were also working together at Synchrony, developing these AI-enabled products. And... We had worked real hard on developing an AI-enabled product that was focused on entertainment and travel. And we were about to launch at a uh, festival called Coachella in April of 2020. And we all know what happened then. So let's not get into that. So around that time last year, you know, our time was our contractual time with Synchrony was also ending. So after you sell a company, oftentimes you have a contract for a few more years. So we thought, well, maybe it is time to make a change. And so we left Synchrony to uh, really to take some time off. But that didn't last too long because in hiking through the woods up here, we realized, hey, we got time to reflect. And we realized there were so many problems with deploying machine learning, absolutely a ton. And, you know, we're thinking, what if there's just a better way to do this? Uh, And I know many of the people out there, you know, one of the easiest ways to start a company is think about a problem you currently have and somewhere else and be like, if I solve this problem, would other people be interested? So, you know, that's kind of the genesis of Savvy AI. The problem was it was really hard to get machine learning into a product that actually makes smarter decisions. And so we set out like, what if we start with making this much easier? And that's what we set out to do. That's awesome. You mentioned, you know, some of those barriers as you were, when you were with GP Shopper and Synchrony. What are some of those barriers as, as you know, from your experience uh, that you're really trying to solve? Oh, yeah. Well, there's getting machine learning into a production 
software is difficult. One of the biggest reasons it's difficult is for the most part, the way you do it today, the way everybody does it today, which I will say is not the savvy way, is you have to go out and collect data and you go go and find data. Like at Synchrony, we had access to this petabyte of data at, at a data lake and you'd have to go through that data and then you'd have to say, well, does this data help me make predictions? And you know what's really sad? No matter how much data you have, unless it's structured in a very particular way, it's not going to help you make good decisions. Because humans like to see data in what we call aggregates. So basically summarized either as totals or as averages, you know, as metrics that we all read. Computers don't want that. Computer wants every single data record, but more importantly, they want the causality. They want the before and after effect of everything. Imagine trying to read a billion different records of this was the before scenario and this was the after scenario. That would be nearly impossible for us humans, but it's exactly what the computers want for machine learning. So one thing we realized is that even if there is data out there, it's very rarely in a really good way for machine learning. Let alone, you know, there's, and I don't want to bring this up here, but there are millions of articles right now about how using historical data has all sorts of problems from bias and preconceived biases, and, and you don't even want to deal with that. So that is the first stumbling block. The next stumbling block has been solved. And I will say it's usually making predictive models. Now, when we were younger, a lot of these predictive models were hard to make because computationally, I remember being back in graduate school. Uh, a while back, and my professor would say, well, this is a convolutional neural net. And, you know, 15 years from now, we're going to be able, based on just looking at um, computational curves, we're going to be able to solve this really quickly. But right now, it would take five days to run that problem. And he was right. Now that same problem and that same math can now be solved in 10 seconds that could have taken weeks or months 15 years ago. So now everybody has predictive models, but here's a problem. If I make a prediction, I've not made a decision. For instance, if I'm trying to decide what is the right credit offer to show Patrick for Shelley, I may want to make a prediction is for Patrick's credit offer, will he repay it? Will it be profitable? Will he like it? And I have to make those same predictions for Shelley. But now I'm saying I've got multiple predictions in each case. Now I have to choose between them. And so what happens is people get lost and they think all they need is a prediction. And then they need this other piece of software that says, given all these predictions, what's my decision? You know, it's funny, as biological intelligence, our brain is doing that all the time. And we don't realize that we are making multiple predictions, right? I, there's a great example, um, Tom Brady in football, right? Where he, they asked him, how do you know which receiver to go to? And he goes, I, I have no idea. Like he, he does not, in those three seconds, actively make a decision. His brain is trained at a subconscious level that he can look at three different receivers and be in the behind the scenes, his brain is predicting. Now I really should be using a, like, I don't even like the Patriots just to be clear. So sorry, Bears fan. <laughs> they did the study on him. So that's the one I wanted to quote. But what it's really happening is, Subconsciously, he's predicting, will that receiver catch the ball? Will the uh, defenseman catch up to him? Can he make that throw? These are three different predictions his brain's making to make the decision of which receiver to go to. That's what Savvy really does. When you're trying to replicate all that piece by piece by piece in the machine learning world, it's very difficult. And big companies like Google and Tesla and you know, Amazon, they do it. 
But what about everybody else? That's a really good analogy. Yeah, and I'm glad. I, I think it made more sense to study Tom Brady than Trubisky. I don't think uh, the decision where you're, you're going to get a lot of like cases where, oh, he made the right decision. Sorry, I like Trubisky. I think he's a wonderful human being. But uh, I think to that point of like success factors of, you know, because you've got to believe that some of the in, the information that he's ingesting is is a man coverage. Is this guy, you know, is he tight? Uh, right. There's just little things, nuances that he's just trained his brain to, to figure out like as a snap decision, right? Exactly. And, and it's about multiple predictions happening to drive a decision and being weighed against each other. And to be honest, like that is how we learn. And the way we've done it, machine learning today has not been that way exactly. You know, it's been about making one prediction and then a human makes a decision and that's good too. But it, for a lot of things, it, it can be automated and made faster. You touched on some of the other big names of folks that are are doing this. And in previous conversations, you've mentioned part of your goal with Savvy is, is that, you know, AI ML for everyone, that democratization. Why is that important to you? Look, I mean, I think it's important to me because we were a company, both GP Shopper and then a small, you know, not, I mean, we had tons of resources because we were at bank and multiples of millions of dollars of it in the resources, but not billions, you know? So whether you're a small team at a big company or you're an independent startup, if the big guys have these big guns and nobody else does, that goes against the ethos that a lot of us have of trying to say, well, we need this to work for everybody. I don't want to live in a world where the only people who have access to the power of machine learning and decisioning are companies who can spend hundreds of millions of dollars in that direction. I would like to see us all have a little bit of that power. So I, th- I think this is personal preference. And also, you know, it's solving a problem I've had many times over where I remember at GP Shopper, we wanted to solve another. We used to have these things called push notifications, which I'm sure either you like or are annoyed by, depending on what application you use all the time. And knowing when to send a push notification to reduce the annoyance factor. And make sure, you know, that's a great machine learning problem. Machines can learn, Patrick, that you might like two push notifications a week. And Shelly may like three, as long as they're between the hours of four and five and not after seven. Like, and that's things machines can learn very well. But putting that, that solution to that problem in current technology may cost a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000. But that problem may only have a value of $20,000 a year. And so how do you solve that cost effectively for somebody who's only going to get $20,000 a year worth of value for that? You need to make that cheaper than $1,000 a year. That's a great point. So, yeah, no, and I, I love your thoughts around trying to democratize AI. So I'm curious, who are your target clients? Um, because you are trying to get this in the hands of the masses versus the few. Yeah, so our target clients are anybody who's got a product team. So there are 600,000 product teams in the United States alone. And so when you think about any company out there with a software team with maybe a few developers or you're a product team of a different company, we don't care. You can be big and use our solution. But we're trying to get our, our solution in the hands of the product managers, of the project managers, of the technical business analysts. We care less a little bit about industry, obviously, e-commerce and fintech and media are, are all industries that mine. I have a lot of experience and context, 
but we've been recently learning about companies in logistics. Uh, we, okay, this is one of my favorite examples. One of our pre-seed investors lives in Montana, beautiful place, you know, about 45 minutes outside of Big Sky. And he's like, you know, one of these guys I know is really nice and he's got a bovine herd software management company. So this means basically he manages, he has software to help you manage heads of cattle. And we're like, okay, I've never taught. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it turns out that the cattle ranches have iPhones and Androids like everybody else. And they want to be able to do things like say, okay, what's the best time for this cow to see a vet? Because seeing a vet is expensive and they really only want to see the vet if it's going to be actually productive for the head of cattle. And so they basically said, well, we could build a stem using your technology. And it actually lets the cattle ranchers themselves almost embed their knowledge into an AI tool that's now going to recommend what's the best time for this cattle to see a vet? What's the best time for this cattle to do the next step across their, uh, you know, across their, the, I say this way, their life cycle. But yes, it is that kind of thing. Uh, it could be anybody. It could be those people. It could be people who, uh, have a, a logistics problem that they're trying to solve and, and say, which, which of my 10 facilities should take on this order? Or it could be uh, financial institutions who may have whole quadras of data scientists, but they're all working on fraud and nobody's working on offer optimization. And when you, the offer optimization people go up to the 30 data scientists at that big financial institution and say, hey, can you help me on this email offer optimization thing I want to do to make sure I send the right email to the right person at the right time. They go, absolutely. As soon as we finish this fraud, this anti-money laundering and this computational investment thing going, we'll get to you. And that's four years from now. (laughs) So so it could be any of these resources, any of these types of people. Could you expound on what is a STEM and and how does that relate to your solution? Absolutely. So Thank you for calling me out on that. Uh, as, as any founder who lives and breathes their product every day, sometimes you get a little too comfortable with your own language. So a STEM is a little AI decision maker. And so if you use Savvy, the first thing we ask you to do is basically build a STEM. You build a STEM by saying, hey, you're a little AI decision maker. First, I want to tell you what to decide. You're deciding between Say um, in a fintech example, you're deciding whether to approve, review, or reject a transaction. Okay, great. Then, much like an employee, you give your STEM a goal. And in that case of that financial one, you'd say, I want the goal to be a successful transaction, and I want to increase that goal while also reducing the goal of a return or what's called a non-sufficient funds event, where basically somebody says they have the money, but they don't actually pay it back. Right. So they want to increase success and decrease failure. Easy enough. And then you say in your STEM, all right, given your goal is to accept or reject transactions and you want to increase successful transactions, what do you think would influence that? And then you say like, oh, maybe the amount of money they're looking to spend, uh, how much money they currently have in the bank, how much money they may already owe somebody, all these different other things that you may have access to for that individual. And so basically a STEM works just like almost a person would work to evaluate a decision on a bunch of criteria. Sometimes we like to say is, you know, I pride myself on being a data-driven decision maker, but a STEM truly is a data-driven decision maker. And the best part about it is that it puts you as the person in control of the STEM in control. 
This isn't about saying, hey, we're replacing a person with the stem. It's more about saying, hey, the person has to be strategic because you know what computers are really good at? Micro tactics. You know, you should see the color red, Charlie should see the color blue. But the real thing where humans are way better than machines is intuition. And, and you got to separate those two. So for instance, one of my favorite data scientists, she, she always used to say, there's an art and a science to data science. And data science is, is the language of, uh, it's basically the field of science of machine learning and of artificial intelligence. The science, you know, to some degree, everybody knows what it is. Those are those algorithms. Those are the, the stats that all of us forget, like the term heteroscedasticity. Those are, are all these different things that you learn to objectively analyze and come up with a prediction. Great. The art is what you should even include in the math. That's what people forget. And that art is often done better by somebody who knows their product, somebody who might be in marketing, somebody who might be the business leader. So take an e-commerce product, right? Something ever like a shopping product. It's generally not the data scientists who know the customer's uh, like pain points. It's oftentimes the product designer or the user experience designer. It's those people who actually have a better sense that we should consider age here or gender here, or we should consider location here versus uh, time of day there. And so that's the, the balance. We want humans to be strategic, telling the machines so they can figure out micro tactics. As you were saying that, I, um, the idea of who would know the customer best, I was thinking probably the people in the, the call room, right? Because they deal with their pain every day. Right. So how do you how do you engage that brain? How do you get those people and their experiences and their common requests into this to your point of when when it's pushed into that high tower of, of you know, IT or technology? You know, it's funny. I have even though I've, I've been the CEO and or co-founder and whatnot, I've always been a product manager at heart. And I love that now this this role product management has become a role, an, an ascendant role. Like now there's chief product officers and they report to CEOs and they're very important roles. And that role, although I will say, I've, I've had like probably over 50 product managers have worked for me over the years. They all hate me because it's the one role I know best. And so I give product managers, Nomeki, who's currently our product manager, must hate me because I'm always hard on that role. But the point here is a good product manager has a strategy for ingesting the ideas and insights that come from the call center, from the clients directly, from the salespeople. Oftentimes when you look at a, a company pinwheel, the product manager is almost always in the center. And so there I would like hopefully the product manager taking the time to talk to the client support teams and make sure that their feedback is in the loop. Having said that, that's why I like that role as a role that builds the stem because they're the ones who could talk to, who have that kind of, overall dominion to talk to the various constituents. I'm curious, um, because your wife is co-founder, is she also a product manager? Does she come from that same background? A little, no. Our joke is that sometimes I build it and she sells it, but sometimes she sells it and I build it. Through entrepreneurialism right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like... All right. She's Jobs and I'm Waz. I'm okay with it. (laughs) The art and the science. Exactly. So, and it's worked out very well for us at GP Shopper. 
we do overlap on the product at times. She's a she in herself is a very competent technologist and could be a great product manager if she wanted to. But the reality is for her, her focus is more on communication and on business strategy and on working with clients. And my focus is uh, more on the product development and the working with the team to build it and thinking of that next generation's problem to solve. How do you turn it off, you know, separate work life and and personal life when you're both very passionate about, um, you know, this business? Uh, I could pretend for five minutes that there's a magical way to turn it off. And there isn't. And and the, the problem with founders is that we're wired different sometimes. And, and so for three years, I worked at a co- company and I love the people at Synchrony and it was led by Margaret Keene and she was wonderful and she believed in us and, and huge thanks to all of them. And Brian Doubles and everybody who works there are like great people, we love them. But at the end of the day, it was just not a good fit for Maya and I because we like to be unbounded and also like to be uh, held responsible. It's a weird duality. Like you will, I don't mind the failure, but I want the credit too. Like I, in, in my eyes, the same, like we want to put ourselves out there. We don't want to fail. We obviously want to succeed, but we're just wired to like, we, we have to try it. And, and I think when you're wired that way, it's, it's hard to turn it off. But when you're forced to turn it off a little bit, uh, you end up just thinking of the next thing to do. So I think, I think it, it, to answer your question, like it's a, blessing and a curse. Uh, I will say also both my parents and Maya's parents were both immigrants and entrepreneurs. So maybe it's a little bit in the DNA. My brother and sister are also entrepreneurs. So wow. Oh, and talking about my brother, he's an entrepreneur in Chicago, actually. So it's, it's a further reinforcement of our love for that city as well from a technology perspective. It is, uh, it, it is very common when I see uh, entrepreneurs, founders, they can't turn it off. But what I think people don't understand is my wife has asked me a number of times, like, why don't you get a hobby? And I said, well, I've got one, right? Like, mine just makes money, right? Like, that's, why is that a problem? At least we hope it does. And sometimes it doesn't. And we have to live through that too. <laughs> right. And, there's, and that's it. So, but it's, yeah, it's, it's about building something, right. And being able to, the accountability, the ownership, the pain, uh, the pleasure, it's all there for you if you want it. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to kind of switch over to was, you know, we had a conversation about FinTech and, you know, the investments going on there and some of the challenges with AI around that. And I, and I really wanted to get your thoughts uh, on, on how you see AI impacting that environment? I will say AI is, is in super fertile ground in the fintech community. Because when you think about what AI and machine learning is about, it's about learning to do things better, hopefully better. You know, we've certainly seen some not great results where machine learning has learned to do things for the worse. And I don't think that was ever intentional, but in some social media platforms, you had some of those issues. But when it comes to fintech, you're, you're often dealing with a lot of statistical data, bank accounts and amounts of money and amounts of money in transactions. You're dealing with also fraud, which generally leaves a pattern. And one thing machine learning is awesome at doing is pattern recognition. And so when you think about the different use cases in financial institutions, whether it's credit approval, transaction approval, 
uh, fraud detection, uh, anti-money laundering uh, detection, you know, predictions on profitability, you have great use cases. Now, I don't think I'm going out on too big a limb with saying that the current model before a lot of financial AI is in place is one that's really based on this thing called credit history. And credit history served a decent purpose, but there are a lot of problems with credit history in that um, there are sometimes people who are, say, immigrants who have great jobs in the United States, but they have no credit history. And then they come over, you know, they're on their H-1B, they're making 130,000 bucks a year, and they can't get a credit card to save their lives. And you're just like, that's a lot of income for somebody who can't get a credit card. And the reason why is because credit history requires that second word, history. And they've just moved from South America or Europe or, or South Asia, and, and they don't have it. And so like, you know, where you can use AI as an augment, a supplement or a replacement for a traditional process like credit history, you could actually look at things like bank cash flow and say, hey, I think I can make a better prediction over the person's credit worthiness. And that's actually better for both the economy and it's better for the financial institution and it's better for that person who recently moved here. And, you know, I don't want to get into, there. there's a lot of like history about credit history that implies socioeconomic upbringing and, and you're weighted down from where you come from and all those other things that people have been trying to improve too. But I think there, there are different techniques that can like look forward that can be better. And, and they can replace the other thing. So, you know, most credit providers have this thing called a decision tree. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. I know, Patrick, you are. Uh, a decision tree is basically a whole bunch of if-then statements. If the credit score is less than you know, 600, don't provide this interest rate. Or if the user doesn't have this job or is unemployed or doesn't have XYZ in collateral, don't do PDQ. And those if-then statements, sometimes they don't learn. And sometimes, you know, looking at somebody who is unemployed may not reflect the fact that their employment is highly probable. And that may not be effective. Or looking at somebody who's, you know, had a very careful cash flow management all their life, then that's what you need to look at. Because maybe they have cash flow from a different source. That's not their job. Like they have a grandmother who keeps giving them two grand a month. And that's not embedded in any job information, but that is part of their cash flow. And then they'd be credit worthy in that context. One of the other uh, topics I want to talk about is uh, your mentors. We want to talk about uh, people who have had, had an influence on you and your career. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when we were talking about it and, and Shelly, I want to, you mentioned that you did something with soldiers, right? Both Patrick and I. Yeah, so Patrick and I uh, belong to an organization called Project Reload. So we basically take uh, corporate executives out and pair them up with military executives over the course of three days. Um, and by the end of the three days, you can imagine the stories that are told and the information that's shared. Um, and so, yeah, that's actually how Patrick and I initially met. Yeah, awesome. And the reason why, you know, I know we brought that up in a previous conversation. I want to bring that up is because that actually leads me to one of my first mentors. So when I left college with a bachelor's in engineering, I decided to move to Israel and live with my grandmother and some of my cousins out there. And I was looking for a job and I finally got one. And basically, if you remember the Maytag repairman used to go and fix, I was a glorified repairman. 
Uh, in Hebrew, it was called Mandish Sherut, so service engineer. And the idea is I used to fly around the world, literally Venezuela, Moscow, all over Europe, even in places in Tomball, Texas. That was probably, probably one of the most exotic places I've ever been was Tomball, Texas. But having said that, I used to fix these digital printers. And I, and I remember I once, I once had this issue. I don't remember which. It was, in, it was, it was either in Venezuela or, it was, yeah, it was in Venezuela, where the person who was bringing me in, right, these machines cost half a million bucks. So anything they could get in terms of spare parts or other things were like really useful. And so I fly back to Israel. I, I did the successful print. It was, everything was successful. And a week later, the guy said that I'd, you know, decided that he wants a lot of free extra equipment, free parts and, and, and spare parts and warranty because he said I was drunk on the job. And he said that I hadn't done it. And I was like, me? No, that wasn't true. And this gets to my mentor, Lior. The big burly guy was a captain in the Israeli army. He was my boss. And, and it's really interesting. And instead of being like the client's always right, which is kind of an Americanism, right? The client's always right. He was like, no, my guy did not do that. I'm sorry. No shot. You're not getting any free. Alex would never have done that. I believe in him. And it, it was very interesting to me because here you are, companies spending millions of dollars, the clients yelling they want free stuff because I'm bad. They have no proof whether I did or didn't do anything, right? This is, there was no video. It was just my word against theirs. And Lior was like, I do not care. He's my guy. He's on my team. Now, granted, when I was in Israel working for, oh my God, he wrecked me. He'd make me work 14 hours a day. He once in order to learn how to fix these printers, we had to build them on the factory floor. And he used to smoke cigarettes. Uh, and, he, and one of the ink is this material called methyl ethyl ketone, highly explosive. He looks at me, he's smoking a cigarette. And he goes, Alex, come here. And I stand right next to him. He's like, puts his cigarette out in the methyl ethyl ketone. I did not know it wouldn't explode. Okay. So I jump like the scared American I was. And they just all laughed. <laughs> would make fun of me as being the American, as being the guy who wasn't in the military. But I tell you, when push came to shove and it was them or us, he was behind me 100%. And I'll, I'll just like, I take that to me everywhere I go. It's like, I may sometimes be hard on my own team, hopefully not, but I, I certainly will, you know, not put a cigarette out on methyl ethyl ketone and not have them practically like pee their pants in front of them. But I wouldn't do that. But one of the things is like what I learned is as hard as he was on me and as hard as he was on making sure I did things right, he had my back in a way that I just, look, I'm sure there, there are plenty of American um, bosses who would do it, but it's the American bosses who have been in the military that I'm sure would do it. Because I think that's also part of that military, like on the ground, we're one unit against the others. And I, you know, to me, that was a huge mentor. So shout out to any of the soldiers and field leaders uh, of military, because, you know, they learned something that I think the rest of us have to learn in a different way. I would say they learn it the harder way, but they learn it the faster way. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and I, I think we talked earlier, Alex, about why Chicago is one of the most underrated sources of talent. And you mentioned that your brother is an entrepreneur here. So curious what you think about that topic. Here's the story. So we started GP Shopper in my living room in New York City, mostly because garages in New York City are totally expensive. 
So we started this company, GP Shopper, you know, 2010, 2007, 10 timeframe, and it was in our living room. And then what happens is we met this great product manager who was living in Chicago at the time. And we're like, oh, come live in New York. And we just opened a New York office. And then him and his wife came to New York City and they started, they, she was pregnant and they started looking at apartments and they're like, no shot. We are not living in the city. It's double anything in Chicago. So he's like, give me three months and I bet you I can hire, because we needed to hire like five people. We just raised some money. He's like, I bet you I can hire incredible people here for less than what you would have to hire them in New York City. And I'm like, sure, why not? And so he opened an office here. And then from there on in, the Chicago office doubled in size almost every year. And the New York office would increase by like 20%. Because <laughs> we just kept getting great, great talent. You know, and it wasn't only that it was great talent. It was great talent that was both hardworking and also like respectful and nothing against the West Coast or the East Coast. Whatever. Sometimes you, you, you know, I think, I think Facebook's public about it. It's the average time at Facebook as an engineer is like 18 months. And that's because people are going, go out, going, go out. And I think that's very different in Chicago. I think, you know, lasting bonds form. And people are excited to work on things and people find if, if you're respectful and you provide a good work environment that they will stick around. And, and to be honest, even in Savvy, there are people we've worked with now for five, 10 years together and they were working at GP Shopper too. So I'm a New Yorker. I love New York, but I will say that Chicago is a fantastic market for talent. I also, I went to Carnegie Mellon, but the other school that I applied to and got into was Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, and I ended up going to CMU, but I've hired out of, I've probably hired two dozen people out of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. I, I love that school. I think it's super, super, super good, and they provide great tech talent, and other, other schools in the Chicago area as well, and so yeah, we, we love it. We love this, that, that city. That's awesome. So just by the way, the founder of the company that I work for, Larry Geese, um, Geese College of Business at University of Illinois is, is named after him. So oh, we're obviously awesome. huge advocates uh, for them. And to the point that I'm back there in August. So I'm spending the week out there. Okay. Chicago in the summer is always great. I can speak for all Chicagoans that we really appreciate when New Yorkers uh, tell us that we're awesome. It really, it really makes us feel great about ourselves. And, uh, you know, it's really what we need. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's some sarcasm in that, but <laughs> a little like, bit, just a little, a little bit. bit, just, just a little, little bit. bit, not too much. Hey, well, but you know, what's funny. I now live. So we, we moved, we were living in Chicago and now we, we live in, in California and, and look, everybody who is East of, you know, East Bay of Berkeley is somehow, you know, 30 years behind in technology from here. So, so I'm getting a dose of my own medicine a little bit. Nice. Nice. Well, that's good. Hey, Alex, thanks so much for being on, on the podcast. It, really great stuff. Uh, it's such a joy uh, hearing about your success, uh, the purpose of Savvy, all the things that, that they're doing. I really, you've got such a bright future and we're, we're really hoping great things for you ahead. So thanks for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Alex. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspheres.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.